Hello and welcome to episode 107 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. Rod Murray strapping in for what I suspect is going to be a bit of a roller coaster ride today because today we're getting out of our comfort zone and doing something that we've frankly deliberately avoided on this show ever since we started. We're going to talk about how to play the game better. Now before you turn off, this isn't advice coming from me or my co-host Adrian Logue because frankly that would be absurd, but former world top 20 player and all-round good guy Nick O'Hearn. That's a whole other story. Nick along in just a moment to talk about his his new book, Play Your Best Golf. But first, an opportunity for Logue to say hello. And Logue, we're out of our wheelhouse today, though. I suspect we might touch on some of our classic hits with Nick along the journey as well, being a golfer's golfer as he is. I, I hope so. I mean, I've structured this whole week and the scheduling of this podcast <laughs> to happen right before I'm going for a game of golf. Play comp. So. Yeah. <laughs> it can only go, go well, one of two ways, this. Yeah. <laughs> no I'll, pressure. I'll, I'll report back on how well this goes, Nick. No pressure. Let's bring in the man himself. Nick Ahern will be well-known to golf fans in Australia as one of our most consistent players for the best part of a decade and a half during the 1990s and 2000s. He burst onto the scene with a remarkable performance at the 1997 Australian Open at Metro and will forever hold the record, and doesn't get enough credit for this, of winning the last professional golf event of the last millennium, the Coolum Classic in December 1999. One of two victories here in Australia, the other coming seven years later at the same course, but a more prestigious event, the Australian PGA, where he defeated Peter Lonard in a playoff, and that was no mean feat at the time, it has to be said. Nick, welcome. Thanks for taking some time, mate. G'day, guys. Nice to chat. Well, let's get into it. As I said in the intro, this isn't the sort of thing that we usually cover on the pod, and that's been deliberate because there's so much else about golf that's interesting that we find interesting and big issues around the game. This is a saturated area. However, we've made an exception in your case for a couple of reasons. One, you're a nice bloke. <laughs> but two, I'm finding it difficult to find the words to say this without it being <laughs> sounding disrespectful. I look at Rory and Adam and Tiger, and I see golfers that I can't relate to at all. I watch you play golf, and it at least looks more relatable. Now, obviously, there's a difference oh, in talent a and ability. Insult buried but, in that uh, compliment there. Isn't it? It's not meant to be, but I see how it comes across that way, and I did want to avoid it. Does that make some sense, what I'm saying there, Nick? You were never a power player, were you? And I think the modern game is very much a power game, isn't it? I'm completely offended, Rod. Um, <laughs> Sorry, mate. No, I'm, shortest, I'm shortest episode we've ever done. <laughs> I could have a walkout on our hands. No, I'm, 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 I'm right there with you. I think... Um, yeah, my style of play is is more relatable to to the everyday golfer where I don't hit the ball very far. I was probably one of the shortest hitters on tour, um, but I was generally one of the most accurate, had a good short game and, and had a pretty decent head on my shoulders. So if you add those things up, I think it re- leads itself to a lot of consistent golf, and that was probably what I was most well known for. Yeah, indeed. And in fact, I think Bruce Young paid you one of the great compliments. He said that if he had a young golfer, looking to learn to play the game, he'd take them out to follow you around because here's a guy who is absolutely getting the most out of what they've got uh, and really playing the game the way it should be played. And I think that's a terrific compliment. Craig Parry once told me years ago, and I was sceptical about this, Nick, that if he caddied for an 18 marker, he'd save them 10 shots in a round. You've opened your book with a similar claim. You've only gone for six or perhaps <laughs> more. Tell me what it is that you see us high handicappers do throwing shots away without ever touching the golf swing, you could save them. Well, that's kind of a, a lot about what the book is about, I suppose. But uh, I've gone for six shots and I've sent, said, well, two basically would be to how to read greens properly because I find that uh, amateur golfers struggle with that. So there's a couple of putts. I'm sure I could save them on the greens. Club selection is another issue. Um, so there's another two shots where I think 
players don't choose the right club hitting into the into the greens. They tend to think they hit the ball further than what they really do. There's a chapter, I guess, which delves a bit on that where, um, you know, I say the only club you really need to hit further is the driver, and if you want to hit a six-iron further, well, then use a five-iron. <laughs> it's called a five-iron. That's right. <laughs> That's my purpose. But- and then the other couple of shots would come from just strategy and, and just thinking well around the golf course. So there's six shots pretty easily that you can save, I, I find. I mean, Paz – he went with the 10. I could have gone that way, but I thought, oh, I'll just uh, be on the conservative side, but definitely uh, six strokes. And, I mean, one of my first clients when I came back to Australia here, he was a 15 or 14 handicapper at the time, and uh, we do most of our sessions out on the golf course, and he said, look, Nick, I, I don't practice, but I want to get to single figures. I said, no problem. So, <laughs> And guess what? Now he's playing off single figures. So, uh, you know, we haven't really done any sessions on the range. It's always been stuff out on the course. Can it be that simple, Nick? Really? <laughs> we need to make golf more complicated. That's exactly right. Is, yeah. I'm not in favour of this. Make your case. <laughs> Indeed. Sorry, yeah. It's, uh, this is not good for your podcast, maybe. So, <laughs> Well, I, I mean, I think, like, put, put it this way. Um, in a nutshell, the book is about kind of everything you don't learn on the driving range, if that makes sense. You know, you, you get on the range and you, you have a nice flat lie, you've got the perfect perfect area to hit off and the conditions are great it's almost like hitting your balls in a simulator so to speak but as soon as you tee off on the golf course every shot after that apart from your tee shot there's some nuance or variance to take into consideration and and that's where i think the art of playing you know that was that was actually one of the things i was thinking about naming my book the art of playing golf but that's obviously already taken with the the lost art series by gary nickel and um and the other gentleman carl morris but um so and then this this book sort of, uh, the name fell into itself after a while. I was really tinkering around with what to call this. And I thought, well, what is this book really about? Well, it's about how to play your best golf. And and in the title, I think the your is is the real key, key, uh, key word there. Um, everyone has their own swing. Everyone has their own style. I'm not saying you should swing it a certain way. I'm just trying to help people play their best golf, basically. I think if you think about it this way, if... Laura Davies tried to adopt VJ Singh's golf routine, it would ruin her mm. <laughs> overnight. If, if Seve Ballesteros had tried to play like Ben Hogan, he would not be Seve Ballesteros. If Phil Mickelson had tried to play like Bill Haas, <laughs> that wouldn't have worked for him. That's where it might make some sense. Play like your personality is, in fact, something you say right up front in the book. How important is that and how many people don't do it? Or conversely, how many people are walking around putting on a personality in real life that only gets exposed once they get onto the golf course. <laughs> yeah, that's true. I've seen some very interesting moments on the course. Um, uh, it, it was an interesting, you know, thing that I started thinking about, especially when I'm helping people out on the golf course. I mean, many years ago, I think I tell a story about a uh, a guy um, playing in a pro am around the in the west coast, playing a, in a I think it might have been Pebble Beach, one of those pro am formats. And this guy was a pretty much a heavy hitter in the in the business world, the CEO and on the tee, he was just so nervous and he was almost sweating on a very cold day. And I said, mate, just just relax. You know, you would just just play like you normally would with your mates. And he said, oh, okay, I, I really feel as I had to be someone different out here because I'm playing with you pros. I said, no, it's it's no different. Just, just play what feels comfortable to you. I had another instance a while back where there was a guy who is a bit ADHD and a very jumpy and uh, he was playing in a pennant team. And his teammates wanted him to slow down and calm down. And I said to him, no, you just you just bounce around, be absolutely nuts out there. That's fine. Just 
just play like you normally would and and you'll and you'll be great and he was like oh that's such a weight off my shoulders you know I can just be myself so that's a real key on the golf course because that little white golf ball it tends to turn us into something we aren't at many you know important times pretty stressful situations you want to be someone that you're not so if you stick to who you are and how you go about things whether that's a fast or a slow player or a or a visual person or an analytical person i think that's that's a real key to the game it's interesting because golf can really reveal who we really are as well it can also have that effect <laughs> but it raises one of the questions i do ask what what place does self-loathing have in the game nick and that self-hate <laughs> so and the self-abuse <laughs> how much of that do we need to get better you would have seen it though it's it's toxic, isn't it? it can be. Well, it, it works for Tyrrell Hatton. He seems to play well when, uh, when he starts to abuse himself and, and go down that route. We've seen that as well. I think Brilliant. you know, if you take the tennis version of that in John McEnroe, he always played better when he started abusing people. But uh, you know, there's a fine line there to tread as to whether that's going to end up being a very, very much a negative for the general population. I'd say don't go down that route. But. Uh, yeah, and in those regards, you don't want to um, be that playing partner that no one likes to play with. You talked before about the driving range and it's flat and it's all easy. Because the other big difference is the scorecard. When it's not in your pocket, you become sort of two different people. Now, have you got some advice for people about that? I don't think there's a golfer alive who hasn't felt, maybe not every time they play a comp, because we play so much of it here in Australia, we might talk about that later, but... Once a month when the medal comes around or they make the final of the match play, they get to the first tee and it all feels different. The club feels like a rubber snake. It isn't different, but it feels different. Any advice for people with that, those kinds of things? Pros must go through that too as you advance through. You obviously get to a point where it's just blasé, but there must be mm. points along no, the journey. It's it's never blasé. I mean, even you know, if I tee it up in a, in a comp, I still, still feel the nerves and things like that. There are different levels of that, obviously. Mm. But, uh, you know, there's a couple of things in that question, I guess. One of the most common things I I hear from people is I hit the ball great on the range and then when I go out in the course, I I really struggle and I can't, um, you know, I can't post a score. So, firstly, that has to do with how they're practising. You know, they're not really practising with with a result or a target in mind. So, it's good to divide your your time up when you do hit balls to, to do certain games and drills where you put yourself under a little bit of pressure. And then the second part of that would be, when you're on the course and when you're feeling uncomfortable, you need something that you can really rely on out on the course, and that's all to do with the pre-shot routine. So developing a consistent pre-shot routine uh, is one of the real keys to playing consistent golf. I mean, if you watch any of the tour pros at, at the elite level, so take obviously the, you know, the best example is Tiger Woods, whether he's got a three-foot putt to win the Masters or whether he's hitting a three-foot putt on the 14th green on a Thursday, there is completely no difference to what he's doing with his routine. Same with his golf swing. You know, whatever he does before he gets over the ball, that may change a little bit because he might be thinking about different things um, and feeling different things. But once he steps into that golf ball and goes through his physical and mental routine, so to speak, that never changes. So you'll find the average golfer out there when they play those comps, which have more importance, more value, I guess, to them, whether it's the match play final or, or they're leading their, their club champs or whatever, um, that's when you need that pre-shot routine the most because that gives your mind something to focus on because we all feel nerves, but it's how you deal with it. So if you have something, you can go, okay, yep, this is what I need to do right now so I can focus on how I'm going to walk into the ball. Maybe it's how many looks I have at the target. I'm going to have a bit of a waggle. What's my swing feel? Things like that. All of those things are processed 
um, thoughts or process feelings. Whereas if you're just worried about where the ball's going to go and you don't want to look like an idiot, that's when the issues sort of come along. And um, it's tricking your mind in a way or training your mind is probably a better way to say it to focus more on the process rather than the result. And in a nutshell, that's what it's all about. Something reliable. To think. Did you watch the shark thing the other night? I, I haven't did. seen it yet. I that did. was obvious in that, wasn't it? What that was obvious. He started oh, restricting yeah. he his yeah. routine. He had a yeah. routine, but he changed it <laughs> on every shot. For it got slower and slower yeah. as yeah. the round got, went on because there were so many thoughts going through his head, yeah. I, I think I've heard you talk in the past about using your glove as a trigger to switch yourself on and switch yourself off between shots. So you you hit your shot, you take your glove off, and then you're you're present to your playing partners and whoever and walking around and looking around, uh, and then you put your glove back on before a shot and you you switch back on. That's yeah. Is that that that's a trigger that you use? That's absolutely spot on. Yeah. Um. One of the it's funny, you know, talking with um like I mentor a couple of tour pros and things like that, but uh, and talking with them, one of the hardest things I think for elite golfers is to switch your mind off, off. between shots. Because you're always on worried about that result. You're always thinking, well, if I can birdie the next three holes or or why did I just three-putt the last hole or, or whoever. And, and this happens to everyday golfers as well where we're out there on the golf course and we're so consumed by the score, the result, what's what may or may not happen. We forget to sort of be in the present moments. And and I was a case in point early on and I just came up with a little, a little trigger where I thought, okay, every time I take my glove off, that sound of the Velcro ripping is my cue to, to switch my mind off and, and just start chatting with my playing partners, my caddy, look at the golf course, enjoy the walk, whatever it was at the time. And then as I approached my ball, as soon as the glove came back out, put it back on, okay, now I'm starting to narrow my focus again and I'm going to really switch back on here. And, and ideally in a round of golf, if you shoot for the average golfer, 85, 90 shot, you know, strokes in a round, whatever handicap you're off, you want to try and switch on. 85 to 90 times um there'll be instances with tap in putts and things like that where you don't need to really switch off but in a in an ideal world yeah you'll have those long sorry you'll have those short bursts of focus and then long bursts of of uh, of not really thinking about much you know mm-hmm. as far as golf is, is concerned and when you do that you just play more stress-free golf and, and you don't walk off with a headache and you're not really you know frustrated about the whole game it's like you barely got your money's worth nick the way you're describing <laughs> yeah. what what freddie couples might have been if he'd worn a glove during his career <laughs> <laughs> it's funny it's funny i should say that at, at, we spoke about you don't wear a glove Sorry? You don't wear a glove. No, never have. Oh, have you seen my thumbs? you seen my hands. Oh, They're not designed they for gloves. gloves. Trust me, no, yeah. they do not. True. I can't even get it in a bowling ball. Uh, Peter Lonard once talked about playing with couples at Hope Island. In about 97, it would have been that the year that you sort of emerged from the tropo tour to the shock of all of us and shot 63 yeah. around Metro in that first round there. And he talked about when he first played with Fred Couples, walking to the ball and chatting away about all sorts of stuff and suddenly just noticed that couples had gone quiet. And he was no longer a part of that conversation. He'd switch back to golf now. And it wasn't rude. It would have looked rude from the outside. It was just, this is golf time now. And it's the same as that glove thing. You know, you can keep talking if you like, but I've stopped listening because I'm now back to playing golf. So interesting. It's a little life tip in there, isn't there, too, Nick? We spend an awful lot of time worrying about what hasn't happened yet. Oh, yeah. Yeah, that's, <laughs> uh, that, that's where I think throughout my career I, I did okay and that I got into meditation. Um, because meditating is really all about being in the present moment and and letting, you know, past and pres- uh, future thoughts sort of come into your mind and then filter through. And and I adapted a lot of the ph- philosophies I learned through meditation on the golf course. And now that's you know a bit of a 
thing that a lot of people don't really do, but it, it certainly helped with me. But you know, as you say, yeah, we spend so much time on our phones and and worrying about what may or may not happen uh, that we forget to actually live in the present moment. And and golf is the ultimate almost test of that in a way because you've got the present moment right in front of you probably every minute or two when you when you arrive at your ball. Mm. It's like I think it hits on an interesting theme as well about expectation management. Um, and that, that it's such a – I think it's a thing that golfers grapple with at every level of the game and at every stage during playing a round of golf. Mm. Like a round of golf starts off with such optimism. <laughs> Hope. <laughs> and at, at that level, like the macro level, you're thinking, oh, I'm going to nail it today. This is, I'm feeling it. This Anything could happen. The world's my oyster. You get out, you're about six holes in and it's... it's <laughs> time it's, for self-loathing and self-hatred and time, time to do a hat. It's like, um, yeah, some horrible movie. Um, but you can turn it around and, it, you know, you can be standing over a ball and have optimism about the outcome of that shot, but also unrealistic expectations about the outcome of the shot and that results in your mental state being uh, down when you don't achieve what you expected yourself to achieve. Um, is, is that something that... Is, it, what, is that course sort of, management, Nick? Is that, yeah, is that part of that, is? or what, what can what can I do to work on that today? <laughs> <laughs> so, well, you, you, you hit the nail on the head in a couple of areas there, where we, you know, we tend to maybe think we're better than we really are in in a way. And I'm not saying that in a negative way. I'm I'm saying that in the fact that, for instance, uh, I, I there's a chapter in there talking about um, playing holes, I guess, with, with less stress or play tougher holes with less stress. I mean, usually the number one and two rated um, uh, holes on on the India in, on the handicap index are, are tough par fours or long par threes. And I say to people, well, rather than playing it as a par four, why don't you play it as a par five? It's just a short three shot hole, and they go, oh, that's interesting. Well, yeah, that oh, you know, that's. That that would make it quite easy because I'm, I make five. I, I should be able to make five quite easily on, a, say, a 440 meter par five. If you call it a par four, all of a sudden it becomes, <laughs> well, this is a tough hole. I've got to hit two really good shots to get there. Mm. Or even if same you on a long par three. Yep. If you play it as a like, there's a whole, um, for instance, at the national, I play down there a bit on on the new Gunnamatta course, the eleventh hole. Some days it can be driver in there and some days you can't even reach it and it's a long par three and I just say, well, play it as a par four, hit a seven iron down the right, wedge it on and make your four, go to the next. You get a stroke, no problem. You may even knock a putt in for a, for a, for a net, um, net birdie or, you know, things like that. So when you think about it in those sorts of terms, you know, we, we tend to overanalyze and, and expect a bit too much about our games at times. Um, if you have the talent to reach those holes in, in two and, you're, uh, and you do the practice and you do the work, and you're able to hit those certain shots, well, absolutely play the hole as as your talent uh, lets you. But, you know, if you're a once-a-week golfer and you don't hit too many balls, well, you know, maybe look at picking up shots in other ways um, where, where you can strategize your way around the course a little bit better. I often think even on par fives, if you hit like even a 180-metre drive to the middle of the fairway and then say to yourself, well, this is like the easiest par four on the course from yeah. here. Yeah. Again, a friend of mine, he uh, he, he struggled at uh, the second hole at Royal Melbourne East, you know, the par four. It's a dogleg right. It's one of the toughest par fours on the course. And he was always trying to go for the green in two. And I said, no, just lay up short of the cross bunker, just 30 yards short of the green. Play it as a par five. And and he said, yep, no, I've never never wiped the hole since. So it's bird, funny how it works. Made 
birdie, Net quote birdie. unquote, uh, every time. Pars are funny. That it really taps into uh, the golfer's psyche, doesn't it, Nick? It's ridiculous, this. At my old course at Mangrove Mountain, the second hole was a very difficult par four, and the fourth hole was ex- almost exactly the same hole, and it was a par five. And I would suggest to people, we should make the second a par five and the fourth a par four. And they'd say, oh, no, no, that'd be far too easy, the second. <laughs> so we're not changing anything else about the whole fellas. We're just going to change what we call it. I said, no, no, it'd be far too easy if it was a par five. So, okay, I give up. Well, <laughs> I guess there's your case in point. I mean, again, there's a chapter in there I've called the par is irrelevant. Yeah. I mean, if you called a 500-metre hole a par three, would that make any difference to how you played the hole? So, no. <laughs> yeah, we, we, uh, well, we all get caught up in that, don't we? I wonder at the professional level, Nick, one of the great mistakes I think most of us recreational players make is about that. There's a bit of ego and a bit of testosterone probably about it, trying to keep up with people who hit it further than you. Does that happen at the top level as well? We saw Rory talk a couple of years ago about seeing what Bryson had done and getting sucked into that a bit. You were never a long hitter. Is that something you just got used to? and just played with regardless? Do we see that at the top of those same? And that's an amateur mistake, isn't it, really? Yeah, well, it, I, I rarely outdrove someone. I mean, whenever I played with Fred Funk, we'd have a long driving competition. <laughs> we, we were two of the shortest out there, but we were also two of the straightest. But uh, funnily enough, if I ever knocked one past one of my playing partners, um, I'd, I'd usually let him know and say, hey, uh, have, have a look at this, mate, I got you. <laughs> but no, it doesn't really happen at that level. I mean, I was I was actually quite surprised by Rory's comments when he mm. when he came out about Bryson and said, well, he needed to gain length. I mean, that was just... Uh, very much a rookie mistake on his part, yeah. for sure, because that's his strength is his driving. And does he need another 30 or 40 metres? No, he doesn't. He just needs to work on his wedges more, Rory, and his putting. Yeah. As, he, um, as his caddy so, said to him, you're Rory effing McElroy. Yeah. Just get on with it. <laughs> yeah, interesting in your yeah. observation of that, Nick. Is it a technique thing, do you think, with his wedges and, and perhaps his putting? Or is there a mental thing going on with Rory? Is it- well, Just it, diagnose him from above. <laughs> that's right. Fix Rory yeah. quick. <laughs> Yeah, I mean, uh, learning how to hit those three-quarter shots with your wedges is, is a real key. I mean, you watch any all the best play, wedge players in the world and it's all about controlling the spin. And that comes down to the angle of attack and, and the club hit speed through the ball. And the best wedge players I ever played with were guys like Steve Stricker and Luke Donald, Tim Clark, and, and they had wonderful control of their speed through the ball and the rotation. And, and currently it's Cam Smith. I mean, he's one of the best wedge players out there. And you can see how smooth and rhythmical he is with his wedges um the thing about rory i've noticed and again i'm i'm just offering my opinion was every time he gets over the ball he looks as though he takes two two looks too many Mm. at the target if he get over the ball looked up at his target came back and just hit it and reacted i think he would play better golf now he's still top 10 in the world so he's one of the best players in the world now would that make a difference i don't know but you look at his personality in a nutshell and he's very reactive, kind of bouncy. Mm. You know, when he gets that strut and bob going down the fairway, it's awesome to watch. When he gets over the ball, he sort of – he takes too long in my opinion. Um, if he just shortened his routine in half while he was over the ball, it would be fascinating to see if that would improve his game, just that 0.1 of a percent that it may need to be in certain times in major championships. Who knows? There is some theory, Nick – we're down a bit of a rabbit hole here – that – the modern power game that you need to really have to compete and contend regularly at that top level requires a whole different set of skills and the body to be somewhat different and that that affects the ability to play those short shots or those three-quarter shots that you're talking about. Do you think there's anything in that? 
No. <laughs> no, I don't because, you know, Tiger's one of the best uh, wedge players around as well, Dustin Johnson. Um, he made yeah, himself I mean, he made himself deliberately a great wedge player, though, Dustin, didn't he? He spent like a full year with just a track man and a bag of wedges, though, as that's yeah. what they say. So, Well, he learned how to control spin and things. I played with Dustin early on in his career, and I thought, wow, if this guy ever figures out his wedges, look out, he'll be number one in the world. <laughs> you hear that sometimes. I remember... Um, John Huggins talking about that. He caddied for Clates with Nicholas Colsarts very early in Colsarts career, and they walked off the course, and Huggy said to Clates, gee, if that guy ever learns to play golf, he'll be dangerous. He can really hit it. It's But that's that's kind of what you're talking about in the book, isn't it? Hitting the ball is one thing, but it's only one part of the rest of you. No golfer has got all of it. We've just spoken about Rory, who's as good a physical player as we've ever seen throughout the game, and he doesn't have it all. Nobody has it all, do they? No, and that's the, the beauty of the game. I mean, even the great, well, Depends who you say is the greatest. Jack Nicholas, uh, he wasn't a great wedge player or have a very good short game, but funnily enough, he didn't need to because he struck the ball so well and he putted so well. Um, perhaps his bunker play was maybe his biggest weakness. Um, Tiger, you could say he has had it just you know, close, all together it? during certain periods yeah. and then you know the the full swing can go a bit off at times and and maybe chipping i mean that was quite interesting to see him struggle with his chipping a while back but you knew that was never going to last long and he's obviously one of the best putters in the game but at the end of the day the at the top level the player's biggest strengths is is what's between the ears um and that is what separates the good players from the great ones I spoke with Ian Triggs last year Terrific coach. People have known him. He's coached some amazing golfers, particularly some of the LPGA's top players. Worked with Kari Webb for a long time. John Senden. I mean, there's there's a front row seat to some ball striking during some practice sessions there between those two. He told me that he watches golf differently to what I do. Do you watch golf differently to what we do? And what sorts of – so who do you like to watch and what sorts of things do you look for? I Funnily enough, you say that, yeah, I do watch golf differently now, um, more so because I guess I know what the players are going through and, and what uh, their tendencies are and, and how they're uh, strategically playing the course and what positions they're putting them in um, themselves into. I tend to love watching the final nine holes just to see if routines change and whether they speed up or slow down. Uh, that's one of the biggest things. And, and in a way, you can almost tell that, okay, this um, – this guy's going to win, uh, you know, sometimes. It doesn't always pan out that way. It was fascinating watching the Masters, uh, the final round with Scotty Scheffler and, and Cam Smith and and the and the way Cam got off to his hot start. But Scheffler just never looked, un, you know, he never looked phased. And that was just so impressive. Even when he got out of position and he was struggling, his short game was that good. He could almost go, well, I can get this up and down anyway. And some of the par putts he made were, you know, just phenomenal. That that putt he made on 11, I think, when uh, Cam Smith rolled in his birdie putt to get potentially, I think, within two or three. Uh, and then Scheffler was left with about an eight-foot curling par putt. That was one of the most critical putts in that round, I feel. And, and I watched his routine and it never changed. And it was just amazing to watch. And as soon as he made that, I thought, okay, yeah, I think he's got this. And then Cam obviously did what he did. Can he hold that chip shot on the third again if you take him down there with a shag bag? <laughs> no, not with 100 balls. That was, it's just one of those moments. Of course, in- which is not a knock on him in any way, shape or form. That's golf, isn't it? Larry Myers hold a shot, and it's just the shot at the right. We've all hold a completely unfeasible shot, everyone who's picked up a golf club. But my goodness, mentally, Nick, he spoke afterwards about having a breakdown in the morning and mm. saying to his wife, 
he didn't think he was ready for this. I wonder whether like a that whole agony in the garden well, type of situation. Well, kind of, but getting that out of the way, so to speak, before you got to the course, might have been what allowed him to just stay in that routine. Cam Smith, and certainly he would have been hearing it and seeing it from here. We all in Australia, some people foolishly, publicly, just came out and said, "Cam's got this in the bag because that's the sort of player he is," mm. and that was a different sort. And it's two holes. Bang, bang, birdie, birdie. You've got to be thinking everything. You hit, then you hit one bad shot. Now you're all at sea, but you're in the middle of a round. You're not at home talking to your wife about it. I wonder how much that played. Because that chipping on the third, the, the momentum shift there was off the charts. So that's where the tournament kind of was decided in a way. Yeah, in a way. I mean, it, it was a phenomenal shot. But um, it was a little surprising to hear uh, Scotty talk that way in, in that regard. It mm. wasn't surprising to hear that he was struggling emotionally with it because, funnily enough, for professional golfers, I mean, I've had the same thing. I've felt more nervous before rounds than when I get out there because once once you're out on the course, you're actually in a situation where, okay, this is what I train for, I can handle this and I'm, I'm you know, I'm, I can control things in a way. There are certain things you can't can't control, obviously. But before the round, it's the build-up and, and when you have that late tea time like he did at Augusta, I mean, he probably teed off at 2.30, 3 o'clock in the afternoon, you've got all this downtime to sit there and think about it and that's when the demons and the negative thoughts start coming in and and as you mentioned, he had a good chat with his wife, and I was surprised he bawled his eyes out. But he was open and honest about it, and it was a great, um, you know, a great story afterwards. I thought that that he was able to get all that emotion out, and then once he got to the course, I think he said, "Yeah, I, I didn't feel too bad. I was I was kind of ready to go, and this is what we're here for." And and to his credit, he had a great caddy on his bag, and Ted Scott as well, who who really helped him through the round. No question, the bits and pieces we heard from Ted Scott on the microphone yeah. were. It, well, you could you could almost hear the shots being saved, couldn't you? In some ways, uh, maybe that's what uh, Norman needed to do before the '96 final round is just ball his eyes out the night before or something. Uh, well, hard to say, well, hard to say. There's a whole lot. There was a whole lifetime of build up to that. Yeah. That that was that's a totally different thing to Scotty Sheffield. I'm not sure I'm ready for this. Norman was more than ready for mm-hmm. it. Norman, in some ways, probably felt in a way he wasn't though, was he? Well, no, he wasn't. As it he was never a, never really ready for to it. face anything. The book is aimed not just at us. Let's be completely frank. Choppers, Nick, players of all levels, including touring pros. And you mentioned you work with some touring pros. All that sort of stuff that you're talking about there, it's often struck me that it must come fairly quickly as a touring professional where the golf course actually becomes the sanctuary. It's the comfortable place. It's all the nonsense that goes on outside the ropes when you're not playing. The managers, the corporate days, the working out the schedules, the which tournaments you're going to play and how you're going with keeping you. All that stuff is just horrendous. And the golf course becomes the sanctuary. Do enough tour pros feel that way or, or take the time to stop and think about the golf course that way? Probably not. No, I mean, I certainly didn't think about it that way when I was playing. I, I, I actually think about it now post-playing, you know, you go back and you go, oh, geez, I wish I'd have thought about it this way more. And But that's always a hindsight thing anyway. It's very easy to look back yeah. and, and do it in that way. So that's where my role, for instance, when I'm helping tour pros is to, you know, get that message across to them. Look, this is, this is the areas you can deal with off course, make sure they're all taken care of. But when you're on the course, okay, this is where we've got to be fully locked in and, and really – at the same time, enjoy being out there and, in, and enjoy playing the game for a living that you love rather than – and early on, you know, it's it's important not to see it as a job in a way. I know it is a job, but it's something it's – a, it's a passion that you're able to do for a living, which is incredible. And the more you see it as a job, I think the the – the well, I guess the enjoyment can can quickly go out of it when you're not playing well. 
And that can happen quite easily, especially at the tour pro level. You know, you see guys miss four, five, six cuts in a row, and then all of a sudden they, they feel as though they're looking for another job in the world because they're not good enough to play. And, and if you define yourself through that, that's going to be a real tough thing to overcome down the road because that's going to happen throughout your career multiple times unless you're you know, one of the very few who doesn't miss too many cuts. So, so seeing the game in that sense where you're out there to perform, obviously, at the highest level that you can, but also see it as this is a pretty cool thing that I'm doing and I'm, I'm fortunate to be doing. I'm going to work my ass off at every possible level to make sure I can continue to do this at a high level. That's, that's a real key part of it as a young touring pro. Mm. Evening out bad form seems to be something that pros can do like minimizing the impact of those missed cuts or like just slipping in the odd made cut in that run of missed cuts seems to be something pros can do that amateurs just have no control over at all like if you just <laughs> if you don't have it you haven't got it and it like to me it's for it's so elusive form it's like you know trying to find the right time to eat an avocado like it's like it's too hard too hard too hard <laughs> and it's perfect and then one day later, it's mush. Like you know, it's nobody does an analogy <laughs> like you do. Like, just, how, how do you work out? I mean, what can you do to manage bad form as an amateur? I was just trying to work out your question there for a second. Um, no. When are you having uh, an avocado, Nick? And how are you going to decide whether you eat? About, you press the top. It's breakfast time here. Yeah, so. At the end of the day, what what the tour pros are the best at is is scrambling and and short game when they're not playing well. Um, when you talk about bad form, most people talk about how they're hitting the ball and things like that. So if you can improve your wedge game, your short game, um, chipping, putting, bunkers, shots, all that sort of thing. I can guarantee your scores are going to improve even when you're not playing well. And then when you do play well, it only takes one swing. That's the beauty of golf is, is I've had moments where I thought, I just I have no clue where this ball's going. And then all of a sudden I'll make a swing and I find a feeling and I go, oh, there it is. It's back. Okay. And then if you haven't screwed up your score up until that point, then you can sort of make a, a decent score by the end of the day. And that's where the tour pros are really good is they're able to manage their mistakes a little bit better. I've often said golf isn't about the quality of your good shots. It's about the quality of your bad ones. And can you still make a score from there? Um, and that's where having a good short game uh, is, is what it's all about. Again, going back to that 18 handicapper analogy, if you put a tour pro within 100 yards of where their ball is, they would be off single figures, an 18 handicapper. But an 18 handicapper from within 100 yards, yes. they're going to struggle to perform, obviously, like a tour pro. But that that's really the biggest separation, I think, is how good tour players are at scrambling and their short game and getting themselves out of trouble, as you mentioned. And that just takes a bit of practice and you're putting yourselves in awkward spots and it sounds as though you do that quite often. So, <laughs> he's he's got, got that got part mastered, Nick. Don't worry about that. <laughs> doesn't need any help with that. How much of that is attitude, Nick? I reckon, I certainly know it's true of me and I reckon it's probably true of most amateurs, Logs just said it. You get to six holes, you're playing awfully. Well, you've given up for the day now because you know that you've you're gone. That's, I never see, almost never see tour pros do that. I watched Greg Chalmers shoot a round of even par at Lake Karen up that he had no business shooting. He could not find the club face, could not couldn't do anything, and it was clearly just infuriatingly hard work. And he walked <laughs> off and signed for an even par. Put anybody, put lots of people in that position. Well, certainly, lots of amateurs, and I don't think they would say. How much of that is attitude, and can you fix a bad attitude? A, a lot of it is attitude. I mean, if you go into the ball thinking, "Well, you know, there's no, I got no chance here." Well, well, guess what? You have no chance. I had a similar round with with Sevi 
back in the day were playing at the Irish Open. And if you watched him tee off every hole, you would have said there was no way this guy's breaking 80 and he signed for a level par 72. I mean, it was one of the most amazing displays of getting yourself out of trouble, but Seve was obviously renowned for that sort of thing. But he he kind of went up to every shot, and I think the people that do it the best, they went up to every shot when they're in trouble as a challenge. They didn't see it as a as a, uh, as a negative thing. They saw it as a positive thing. They thought, well, okay, cool. Now I can, now I can show off my skills. How, how can I get this up and down? How can I sh- make par from here? Because this is ridiculous. Mm. Or how can I save bogey? There are times when, you know, bogey's a really good score mm. on a hole. So it's, it comes down to a little bit to that routine that I was talking about earlier, the pre-shot routine. Part of that is also a bit of a, a, a mindset in a way. You're walking into the ball with a fresh set of eyes. You haven't dragged everything in from behind from the previous six holes if you've got off to a bad start every shot is its own new opportunity new challenge so if you can look at it in that way the game just becomes more fun i think because you know one of the hardest things as a tour pro is knowing you're missing a cut you know you're six shots back and you've got two holes left there's there's no way you're going to make the cut so it's in those two holes where it's interesting to watch players and, and their attitudes some just kind of you know bag it in and just go, right, I'm just going to get to the clubhouse and get to the plane as soon as I can. Others, you can see them working on things and going, okay, well, what what can I do over these next two holes which might help me this, this, uh, next week? And it's there; those are the sorts of players that you go, right, these guys, they're, they're going to make a living out of this because they know what they're doing. The other ones, they're just, you know, signing it in and getting out of here and many times you don't see them too often in the, in the following few years because they've lost their card. Yeah. I think the old handicap system was a bit like that where you, you knew you were going to get point one back regardless of what was going to happen <laughs> at some point. At some point in the round, it's like, ah, oh, this is not all the birdies in the world are going to help me not get point one back here. I might as well just give up. That uh, What you described there about Seve reminds me of a story somebody told me about Phil Mickelson at his best. Uh, this rules official I know was refereeing him at a British Open and he had an embedded ball. It was sort of in contention. He was, you know, looking to make birdies and get himself into the mix. Never out of it, Phil, it, was he? Never One out of, of it. Players, yeah. uh, and he had an embedded ball uh, off the fairway and the rule at the time was it could have been a local rule whether you get relief or not. And so Mickelson's asked for a ruling and it got they they checked it all out and they said, oh, no, you've, you've actually got to play it. And he said... He expected him to spit the dummy, but he was still thinking about making a birdie. He was, he was looking at this lie, looking at what he had to do, and thinking to himself, oh, okay, that's just that's fine. I, I can I can still work out how I can make birdie here. Like it just instantly turned around, no dummy spit or anything. No, just just accepted the ruling and was like, oh, okay, how can I make the best of this situation? You're born with that, Nick? Are you born with that or can you develop that? Oh, I think you can uh, – it certainly helps to be born with it, um, but you can develop it for sure. Uh, I think you can, you know, you can you can be a negative person to start off with and then flip that around. I mean, I, I was pretty negative when I first started playing golf and was really struggling and couldn't break 80. So um, tell you people can about your mind in a way to, to get it back to the other way for sure. It's, it's a little harder, obviously. Tell people about your first lesson with Neil Smith and what he said to you. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, Neil, Neil Simpson, he's the Simpsons. teaching pro over at uh, the Mount Lawley Golf Club uh, in Perth. And and at this point, I was in my early 20s and, and I went and hit some hit some balls on the range and Neil came down to give me my first lesson. And after watching me hit about four shots, he said to me, you're a pro? <laughs> <laughs> okay. Yeah. Uh, yeah, that doesn't look too good. So, um, yeah. So, now, now, you laugh but, about it now, Nick. 
but for another player, that could have been devastating. Couldn't yeah, it? no, you're probably right, actually. I, I, my response to him was I said, look, I know it doesn't look pretty, but I've got one hell of a short, short game and I love to work. So uh, however you can help me, I'm, I'm ready. So, um, But Neil, that, that's Neil in a nutshell. Sure. He doesn't, you know, he's old school, calls it like it is. <laughs> yeah, uh, I guess I kind of I, – I, the kind of players I really like to when you go out and follow are players like yourself. Nathan Green's another one I think of. Um Players that you might look at on the range, and there's guys who are super impeded, the Rory's and the Dustin's and the Adam, you're drawn to go and watch them. But the guys the other end who are competing, and Nathan Green won on the US tour. Mm, that's an yeah, ex- exactly. that's extraordinary achievement. And you go and watch oh. him play golf, and you think to yourself, that's amazing. How did you do that? And that's a really intriguing question. And you're a bit similar. As I said, people would probably watch your swing, which always looked a bit <laughs> funky. Being left-handed doesn't help, but it always looked a bit funky. And yet, we haven't mentioned it yet, but we will. Took down Tiger twice in match play. Yeah, yeah. Well, that maybe that was what uh, what did it. I just, you know, he, he looked at my swing and thought, "Well, this guy's got no chance," and I uh, I underwhelmed him or something. <laughs> <laughs> do you do you reckon honestly? Is that a trap he could have fallen into? I wouldn't have thought so, but no, he uh, no. I was only kidding. He he took everyone very seriously, mm-hmm. whoever he played, and um, I, I, you know, in both my matches, I played really, really well. And and match play, you just never know what can happen, and. I've told the story many times. My my plan going into the matches was was to get the lead early because he is the ultimate front runner. Mm. If he gets the lead, uh, you know, history showed at those at that particular point when I played him, he'd never lost a major uh, when he's been leading or being tied for the lead going into the final round. And I was treating it like you know the last round of a major basically. And uh, so the key was to get ahead early, and and I was able to do that and uh, and never let him back in. I never trailed to him in both matches. Now, you could go into that match thinking, look, realistically, I've probably got no chance here. But you could go into that match thinking, well, actually, I've got nothing to lose here. And it sounds to me like you've taken the latter. Now, that doesn't mean you're going to win, does it? No. But it gives you a much better chance than the other, doesn't it? That simple difference in the way you think. And it feels to me like for a lot of us high-handed, a change in the way we think about lots of stuff like that would really help. Yeah, and no, I went into the match just seeing it as an opportunity. I'd, I'd, my first time was I'd beaten Charles Howe third on the 19th hole in the previous round, and Charles was pretty annoyed. And I said, mate, because Charles was a lovely guy, and, you know, we, mm. we, we live next door to each other over in the US, and uh, said, you okay? And he said, oh, well, I'm, I'm annoyed because <laughs> – you know, you know who you're playing next, don't you? And I said, no, I wouldn't have a clue. I haven't looked that far ahead. And he says, well, this Tiger. I thought, oh, oh, cool. So I kind of went into the match thinking – well, this is a great opportunity. I'm playing really well, as you said, Rod. I've got nothing to lose, and and I knew I knew Pom had beaten him, Peter O'Malley. He, um, you know, he'd beaten him in the match play before. So I thought, well, if Pom can beat him, I'm sure I can. And uh, and again, I played great that day. Probably shot six under par and and rolled him pretty, uh, you know, three and one or something like that. So it was a lot of fun. Yeah, Brendan Jones had the opportunity to continue that tradition of Australians beating. <laughs> As did Aaron Baddeley. Aaron Baddeley took him to, I think, the 21st hole really. at the World Match Play uh, before he finally sort of got done. Maybe it's something about Australians that uh, maybe <laughs> they were doing. Uh, back to the book, Nick. So who is the target market? I know you've kind of said it's for everybody. Who's really the target? Who should buy it? And what sort of attitude should they go into reading it with? Because I think we've all read lots of golf books and lots of books to tell you how to play golf better. I don't think you'd be pretending to reinvent the wheel here, but by the same token, I like I like the style of it. Who's mm. kind of the target? Who should read this book? Well, it, it, it came about, I started writing it through lockdowns, funnily enough, uh, through COVID, and, and the last few years since I've stopped playing, I've, be, I've begun mentoring 
uh, elite players from tour pros to amateurs to coaching 27 handicappers. So funnily enough, in a way, it's it's for that range because that's kind of how I – they're the sort of golfers that I help. I'd say the vast population is going to be your single figures to your 27 handicappers. The tour pros, you know, they'll read the book and they'll go, yep, I kind of know a lot of this stuff. Oh, actually, I didn't know that. And, you know, they'll pick up one or two things, whereas I think – the rest of the golfing population may go, wow, okay, that's pretty cool. I've already had some comments of friends who have pre-read it and they've gone, this has opened my eyes up to how you guys play the game and, and how it can really help me, which is which is really cool. And the style of the book is not technical in any way. I'm not going to tell you, okay, you need to be in this position on your backswing. It's more about how to play certain shots. I mean, to give you an example, one of the hardest shots players I think find playing off is sloping lies. And after you tee off, basically every shot is a sloping lie of some sort, unless you're playing on a piece of very, very flat land. So making the adjustments necessary to play off downhill, uphill, side hill lies, out of long grass, out of sand, things like that, people I find aren't quite aware of everything that goes into that. Uh, one of the chapters, one of my favourite chapters is called The Lie Determines Everything. And and because what tends to happen when people get to their golf ball on the course, the first thing they do is they pick up their laser and they, they, they get the yardage. I always say to people, don't do that. Go and look at the ball. Go and have a look. See how it's lying. Is it sitting down? Is it sitting up? Is it downhill, uphill? After you've done that, what sort of contact you can make on the ball, then look up at the flag and go, what sort of shot suits what I'm facing right here? Is it a high, low, draw, fade? If you can't hit any of those shots is okay what sort of a club am i going to use does it feel like a seven iron does it feel like a six iron don't think in terms of is it 150 meters think in terms of club and then once you've come to all those sorts of little decisions then pick up your laser then get your yardage and go well does this match what i'm feeling because playing golf is more about what you feel rather than numbers and i find especially when conditions are tough when it's windy if it's cold if it's hot Numbers tend to go out the window because the ball won't do exactly what you think every single time consistently because the, the conditions determine so much more. And, and really that's what this book, I guess, is, is a lot about for the full swing in that regard. And then there's also a lot in there on short game, putting, some more mental game stuff as well. The short game, especially in the putting, this is where you can save so many strokes on the golf course and even just how to read greens. And again, I'm not going to tell people how to – how to stroke the putt it's more i talk in terms of putting the, the, the two biggest thing in putting for me is rhythm and tempo the best putters in the world rhythm and tempo that's what it's all about and i talk a lot about how to do that and how to achieve it and things like that so because you know three putts are one of the most common things out there for most golfers and why do people three putt it's because of poor speed yeah. not because of line it's no. because of poor speed they leave a 30 foot or six feet short they don't go six foot wide no. <laughs> even the even, like even the worst putters generally are somewhere within a foot or two on the line, aren't they? Yeah, but they exactly. won't be within a foot or two on the speed. It's uh, it's quite much. That's the low hanging fruit, really, isn't it, Nick? I think mm. the easiest stuff, in some ways, it's the hardest. But the easiest is to be open to change the way you think, 
mm-hmm. just simply resetting after nine holes. Okay, that's the front nine done. Now we're playing the back nine. It's a new game. Let's start again. I tried that for a while. It's right. remarkably effective. You can be playing shot poorly shot for nine. Even. I mean, well, Tyrrell Hatton gets it out of his system. Yeah, as did moves on to the next shot. Tiger as well. And the short game, as you say, is it's the really low hanger. You can see really rapid improvement, which is, I suspect, what you've done with some of your 16 marks. Why would somebody who got to number 16 in the world enjoy the process of working with the 27 marker, Nick? Your touring brethren, most of them, would prefer to extract their own teeth without anaesthetic <laughs> than work with 27 markers. What's wrong with you? <laughs> well, it's interesting. You know, I, I tell a story in the book about Peter Thompson and how he went full circle in the game. He started out as a high handicapper who hit the ball 150 yards and then he went to play, obviously, some amazing golf, winning five opens and tournaments all over the world, hitting the ball, I don't know, 270 yards, whatever it was. And then at his end of his playing career, he came back to, I guess, hitting it back to his 150 yards. So he'd come full circle. And and I see my my progression in golf coming the same way, not in that sense, but more in the fact that I started out as a teaching pro because I wasn't good enough to play the game for a living. So I did a lot of coaching early on. I went out and I played for 20 years or so. And now I've sort of come back to my roots and come back to coaching and, and helping people. But again, I come from a different perspective. I I really don't give too many technical lessons. I give more lessons on how to play the game, how to score and get the most out of your ability because, to be honest, for the most part, 99% of the golfers out there, they don't want to go to the range and practice for three or four hours, which is what it takes when you want to change your technical game, your, your technical golf swing. The good thing about this book, for instance, if you read it, is you're not going to have to change your swing. you just got to change perhaps the way you think about the game and adjust to the situations that that occur on the golf course. You talk about pro golfers. I think the biggest thing professional golfers are is they're professional adapters because week in, week out, they have to go to a different golf course that has different conditions, different grasses, different sands, et cetera, et cetera, every single week. So being able to adapt and be flexible to what is put in front of you on the golf course, that's your number one asset, I think. Mm, that's interesting. Everything you described there about reading your lie and feeling the shot and that that's kind of the opposite of what i'd have thought your style of golf is like that that consistent that ability to produce consistent sort of i don't know i don't want to say boring golf Mm. year after year day after day you'd think that comes from more of a robotic approach perfectly predictable perfectly presentable six iron (laughs) (laughs) that's right just like what are the numbers uh, you know execute the shot go to the ball, execute the next shot. But what you're describing is the complete opposite of that. It's it's all of this uh, feel. Like hippie stuff. And shot, on shot making, shot making stuff like that. It's complete opposite of what I would have thought uh, the approach to, to playing, you know, boringly excellent golf would be. Hmm. Well, that's kind of where we get sucked in, I think, with the modern day game and watching the tour pros out there. They're, they're, they do rely a lot on numbers and some of the young players I work with, I do – like one of my favourite games when I'm working with someone is is I'll say, okay, for nine holes, you can't use your laser. And some of them go, well, how will I know what club to use? <laughs> <laughs> and, and, and again, some of them say, well, they've never played without a laser. So that's, that's a great thing to try out on the golf course, Adrian, when you go out there today is don't use a laser and just say, see how you go. Because the goal is, isn't necessarily to use the right club. It, it, it's, it's about getting pin high. And if I have a 150-metre shot, I could use five or six different clubs to get it 150 metres if you know how to play those sorts of shots. The goal is always to be pin high in golf. 
Mm. Same with putting. It's all about speed. It's to be around the hole. So when you think of it in those terms, that's when you tap into more the creative and the feel touchy side, as you say, and you get out of the robotic style of playing. Because that's that's a real trap, I think, with a lot of amateur golfers that play club golf out there is is they think, oh, it's 150 metres, it has to be a 7-iron. No, it doesn't have to be a 7-iron. It could be a 6, a 5, it could be an 8-iron, you know. Depends on what sort of shot you want playing. to hit. I always say there's never a wrong club. It depends what shot you want to hit. It's playing golf swing instead of playing golf. Yeah, that's right. I think the, all golf shots are equal. I'm interested in your, your writing first came to my attention, Nick, when you wrote a blog post about Winter Park um, mm-hmm. and yeah. uh, just describing the experience of you drove past there one day and you noticed you were living in that area in Orlando, I think. You drove past and you noticed, oh, there's, they've done some work on this little public course that uh, you know is near in my neighborhood and you went out and played and you walked and you were really impressed with what you saw and one of the things that you enjoyed was walking through the entrance of a green and and you had this revelation that greens were designed to be walked into from the front and Mm -hmm. uh and just you know what an enjoyable part of that experience that was and so I thought, oh, this bloke can write. And I, I had a look at tour mentality. Rod, Rod had uh, seen that as well. What what motivates you to write? And you know, what, did you see yourself um, writing books when you're on tour? And is it something you've always wanted to do? Or you know, what? what and what's your process? Uh, no, is, is the short answer. I never thought of myself as a writer. I, I the only reason tour mentality came about uh, back in 2016 was I was playing with friends um at my local course there at a place called Isleworth where a lot of tour pros played and lived at and I was playing with a mate who's about a six handicapper and he was just having an off real horrible day on the golf course and I could just see his mind was you know going through a million swing thoughts and I said mate okay let's simplify this to just see your target react to it you know I won't go into the details and all of a sudden he hit a good shot and he said oh okay is it really that simple? You know, what do I do now? And I said, well, 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 let's let's repeat that. And anyway, so we got started. We, we started talking about the mental side of golf and what I used to work on. And he said, you should write a book on all this stuff. This is just absolutely amazing. Uh, and I said, no, nah, there are plenty of mental game books out there already, Bob Rotella and all those guys. And he said, yeah, but they're sports psychologists. They've never had to hold a three-foot putt to make a cut or win a tournament. You've done all that. You have a different perspective. So so that's when I started thinking about it, and I wrote a few notes out for him, um, just one page, and he said, oh, can you give me more? And that turned into five, ten pages, 20, and, and all of a sudden tour mentality sort of came around. And and then when the lockdowns hit here, I'd always had an idea to write a follow-up book to tour mentality. The name, I'd come up with the name tour strategy, but that was very unsexy. So, um, you know, how to play your best golf is much better, but but this book is is just basically a culmination of all the things that I've continued to learn throughout my post-playing days, but also just revisiting a lot of the areas that I worked on throughout my playing days. And the writing style, I guess, just is, I don't know, it's just what I'm thinking in my head. And, you know, it does take me several versions to, to write out a paragraph or something. I can't just do it once and, and away it goes. I've got to go back through and edit it. So it's a bit robotic in that sense, but... Uh, I always I've enjoyed the whole process of it, and and through both books, the good news is I've had no help um, writing them. It's, it's all me basically. Just with this one, there was an editor who came in and put full stops where they should be, and commas and things like that. So um, so I'm learning about it as I go. I'd love to be more creative with my writing. Funnily enough, you talk about it in the golfing sense. 
I find myself quite mechanical with my writing, but um, but it's a work in progress, and I'm always interested in learning more about it. And um, you know, I've already got ideas possibly for another book later on down the track. But but we'll see how this one goes. Who knows? I mean, the real achievement in writing a book is finishing writing a book. Yeah, that's exactly right. And he's, he's having written. The joy is not in the writing; it's in the having written. But that's the thing about writing a book: it's yeah. you've got to write the book. And do you did you have to hold yourself to some sort of a routine? Are you that sort of writer that will just wait for the inspiration to come and, and you find that happens every day or is it yeah I, I i do a lot of walking so every morning uh you know i throw on a podcast or something in my head or some music and it's funny you know when you exercise and you walk like that i find the best ideas come in and as i was walking i, I all of a sudden I had a little dictaphone on the on the phone you know you can do one of those voice memo things i get these ideas popping in my head and i just talk into it and then write them out later as headings and go, okay, I'm going to talk a bit about the lie. I'm going to talk a bit about the short game, et cetera, et cetera. And, and as I went along, I just had all these different ideas. I'd already had a lot of ideas in my head. It was just more putting some structure to it. So I, I basically just had a headline of a chapter, wrote it out, and then at the end I've got, I don't know, however many chapters I've, I've got, 15 or 20 or 25 chapters. And then I thought, well, okay, how am I going to structure this so it makes some sense? And that's when I had to rework it into – into the sections there's about five four or five sections in this book you know one's on strategy one's on preparation there's mental game there's short game and i've sort of finished the book off in this instance with a uh i guess a bit of a little bit autobiographical again but just talking about one of the chapters is is talking about how to be a rookie on tour i thought well that'd be an interesting chapter for young tour pros out there who who want to learn more what it's about being uh your first year on tour because that's the hardest um in, in tour mentality, I had my wife write a chapter. In this particular book, I've had my old caddy Wilbur write a chapter because you know, he, he's talking about uh, what it's like being a caddy on tour. And I, I think that's one of the most fascinating chapters as well. So um, it's, a, it's a, you know, a book which just evolved over time, I guess, and it probably took me six to nine months to write uh, in total and, and then get it how I wanted to and then Send it out to some publishers. In this case, Hardy Grant uh, is publishing it. A friend of mine um, knows Sandy Grant, who's a member at Royal Melbourne, and, and he read it and loved it. And uh, it's sort of taken on a life of its own. And when you put it in hands of publishers, you kind of think, well, what are they going to do to my book? You know, and uh, how are they going to lay it out and, and and structure it? And and the finished product's really really good. I'm, and I'm happy with it, and I'm can't ho- wait to get it out there. And hopefully, I'll um, I'm going to start doing some videos around it too, potentially as well. I'm holding it in my hands here, and it's a very handsome edition. Hardcover, beautiful, beautiful hardcover, really and the the typography's excellent. Yeah, I can, well, give my layout's a, nice. approval to the typography, and yeah, the layout's great. It's a very nice book. Yeah. Yeah. Well, yeah, sending it off to the publisher like an amateur going for a lesson with a golf pro, Nick. He's like, oh god, these are the people who know what they're talking about. I've got myself to this point now. I don't know. What I do a couple of things to finish up. We've kept you longer than I meant to. Uh, you were talking before about the trap of professional golfers falling into the notion of this is a job and it's work. Meg McLaren, who's leading in Bonneville this week, talked about that earlier in the week, that she, in America, she felt she'd fallen into that mindset and she's come back to the ladies' European tour where she doesn't feel like that. And Are they linked? Who knows? But she's playing some remarkable golf up there at Bonneville, so that's interesting. And you mentioned Peter Thompson, and I was one of the most fascinating stories I can recall about him. In a practice round for the Open, he, had, he got a case of the Shanks, a shocking case of the Shanks. Hit a whole bunch of them. And one of the writers asked him after the round, he said, you've been out there, Shank, what are you going to do about that? And he said, I'm going to go back to my hotel room and I'm going to think about it. <laughs> <laughs> that was it. 
Yeah. Most pro golfers, they'd be off to the range, they'd hit a thousand balls. He went back to his hotel room and to think about it, which is telling, isn't it? He was another one, Nick, whose putting philosophy was don't three putt. Yeah. He was never trying to hold putts, just don't three putt. And yeah, no, it's 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 amazing to have that sort of mindset. I mean, you talk about thinking about Jack Nicholas was famous for that as well. I remember uh, someone told me a story, it might have been Tom Weisskopf talking about it, where they would really never see Jack Nicholas on the range at tournaments. Um, you know, he'd, he'd come out and he'd hit 20 balls or so, or hard 30 balls on the practice days. He'd obviously be there, you know, warming up before his round on tournament days, but they. They, they said to him later, Jack, why, why did we never really see you on the range very much? And he said, well, I did all my work in the off weeks. The on weeks, I found, I, I went to the range, you know, did the putting green, sort of got used to the conditions. And if I was hitting the ball well after 20 balls or so, well, I'd go back to my hotel and then I'd be quite happy with it. And he said, if I wasn't hitting the ball well, well, then I'd go back to my hotel and then I'd just think about it. Exactly the same as Peter Thompson yep. said. Yeah. And Annika Sorensen was another one in the same regard. She didn't do too much work during tournament weeks. They do it on their off weeks yeah. because tournament weeks you want to be fresh and it's a trap for young players is to get on the range, beat balls, beat balls, and by the time Thursday comes around, Friday, they're absolutely exhausted yeah. from all the practice. Yeah, and all the, the, the pressure you're putting on yourself with every shot you hit and did to go where I wanted to and all that sort of stuff. What's the old saying, Nick? If it, if it wasn't in your suitcase when you left home, you're not going to find it on the yeah. range on Wednesday. and that's right. You've got to sell what's on the truck. Yeah, that's true. The only thing, of course, it's a trap for players. Is you can convince yourself that you're outworking the opposition by just simply beating golf balls. Can't you? This is a trap for amateurs as well. Oh, I practice twice a week. Well, what are you practicing? How long are you practicing? And does that make any sense, what you're actually doing? It's a just practicing is not really achieving anything, is it, if you're not practicing with some sort of purpose? Yeah, you need that productive practice, yeah. basically, and structure, a, you know, an hour. Say you go hit a hit balls for an hour. One of my great philosophies is, okay, I want to be better at the end of that hour than when I started. So how do I structure practice in the most effective way to do that? And I explain that in the book as well about how to practice effectively and, and get the most out of a session. You know, an hour of quality practice is much better than beating balls for five hours with not much purpose. So yeah. We all kind of know that anyway. There are. I urge people to listen to this more than once, this podcast, because there's little nuggets of gold sprinkled through here that you'll have missed the first time. I suspect the book is exactly the same. I haven't finished reading it. I've only read the first couple of chapters, but already I think that's probably the case. been fabulous of you to take some time, Nick. Where can people go and get the book? And can people come and get lessons and coaching with you, and how would they go about that if it's possible? Yeah, so the book uh, online, it's being released first week of May. Uh, I think they can pre-order now on Booktopia. .com.au, the website, and it'll be available in all major bookstores throughout Australia um, and overseas. It's through Amazon. They can just look it up on that, no problem. I'm hoping to get it into a lot of the uh, golf clubs here in Australia. So I'll be making some phone calls soon to the GMs and the pros and see if we can get it in there. You thought writing a book uh, was hard. Good luck with that, my friend. Dealing with <laughs> golf club GMs and whatnot. Goodness. Yeah, me. I know. Book, book, I've done. A, I did a few for tour mentality, so uh, so we'll see how we go. Something different, anyway. As far as coaching and mentoring and that sort of thing goes, um, yeah, just I have a website, nickahern.com. You can always just shoot me an email through that and I'm happy to respond and, and let people know what I uh, what I do. And look, uh, honestly, not only one of the good guys of Australian golf, one of our best players and probably we underrate the achievement of keeping a tour card for 10 or 12 or 15 years. It's an extraordinary thing to have done. All we do is look at people who've won this or won that, but uh, extraordinary life that you've built in golf. Great to chat to you again today, Nick, and look forward to catching up again soon. Thanks for taking some time. Thanks, guys. Appreciate it.
And Logue, you're either going to play horrendously or fabulously today. <laughs> well, it looks like it's wet again out there today in Sydney. So, uh, yeah, I don't know. It's pretty pretty miserable playing golf at the moment. So in you're, Sydney. So you're, I don't know, it's you're not, already starting with it's, expectations. It's not low, about. So that's good. It's not about the score. <laughs> I, like every time you just every day in Sydney at the moment, you, there's that Robert Redford quote from uh, Three Days of the Condor. Where he says, "I don't remember yesterday. Today it rained." Fantastic stuff. That's episode 107 of the Good Good Golf Podcast. In the books, we'll look forward to your company again when we do it all again next time here on the Good Good Golf Podcast.